0: Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 549 with Michael Cooney.
1: It's really hard for a lot of young restaurant people is, you know, they want to do more. They want to learn more, but there's not a lot of room either just for experience or to grow. So they feel like they're getting stifled as a server or a bartender or in some cases a manager. And they, you know, they get stuck being a manager for a year or two without being able to explore and grow. That's one of the problems I think I have with our industry is that there's really no other way for people that want to grow to try anything besides the walls that they're within. So if you work for Road 34 or brewers for Cotoro, that's what you know. And that's great. They're good restaurants, but you got to be able to, f- to learn other ways. I think that's something that's missing.
0: Are you ready for it factors success stories? Cashflow, it's something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing, and worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow and it also alerts for unexpected expenses on top of all this it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow next week and next month go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out RestaurantEthics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out EthicsSuite.com for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation one more time that's ethics suite.com slash restaurants unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest michael cooney my man michael are you feeling unstoppable today I certainly am. I'm thriving. <laughs> yes, let's do this. So as far back as he can remember, Michael Cooney has always enjoyed being around small business owners growing up in a big Irish family. Michael was no stranger to good food either, as there was plenty of home cooking. But Cooney wouldn't really understand food until he moved to California, where he worked for the Malibu group. Cooney would return to Boston to work for a public house in Sorriso. Am I saying that correctly? Soriso. Sorriso. It was at Soriso where Cooney met future business partner John Payne and the Dreaming commenced by 2014. Brewer's Fork was created, located in Charleston, Massachusetts, Charlestown, Massachusetts. And uh, they've just been receiving nothing but praise ever since. I can't wait to dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational
1: ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Mantra that we use a lot around here uh, was something when we first started training. And it was Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Would you serve that to your mother? Ooh, uh, It's an easy one to think about, but when it's heated, you're busy, you're running around, you know, you got a, a dish that might be up in the window that might not be perfect or a beer that kind of sat there a little too long that needs to be, you know, topped off a little bit. Just always thinking to yourself, you know, every guest that comes in is a special guest, just as special as your yeah. mother.
0: Would you serve it to your mother and would you treat your mother like that as the other part of that too? If you treat every guest like your mother, uh, like she or he your father, right? Like yeah. that much special. Exactly. Is, you know? Yeah. Grandmother, grandfather. Yeah. I love it. Great way to get this thing started. So where did it all start for you? Bring us to the moment where you knew you're going to commit your life to hospitality. Uh,
1: later on in my restaurant career, for sure. I always, uh, enjoyed the restaurant scene. It was a good way to make money travel around. Uh, after I finished school, I lived in Florida for a little bit and then moved out to California for a good amount of time. And that was an easy way to travel around, make the cash, pay the rent. Um, but it was when I came back, um, I worked again, you know, at Ceriso doing some, some bartending shifts. And then I also took a daytime gig. Um, I got involved in real estate and kind of, you know, shirt and tie sort of thing. And I was just miserable. I hated it. And it was at that point that I realized I love small business. I love restaurants. I love being in the trenches. Um, I love that instant gratification that you get when, you know, someone smiles, someone laughs, someone, you know, is just enjoying the space. Um, so yeah, it was probably, so this was all before you went out
0: to California,
1: right? It was, uh, when I came back, you came back from California. Yeah. When okay. I was in, when I started in California, I worked in Santa Monica for a bit and then I ended up going to work for the Malibu group and they were great. I loved it. Um, but it was kind of a, a shit, a good off the pot sort of moment there where they wanted to open a restaurant and I even needed to decide if I was going to open the restaurant with them or move, you know, back to Boston. Um, so I decided to come back. I was a baby of a big family. People were getting older. Um, so I did that again. Picked up another bartending job, and it was kind of at that point. I- okay.
0: And doing a little research on you, um, it sounds like you've always kind of kind of been drawn to business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and business owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you intentional about surrounding yourself with certain people to learn, or did you just like these people? Like, what was going on there early on in your life?
1: I in my family, I grew up kind of split. It was kind of a blue collar family, but someone off the side of their own businesses, some kind of, you know, worked for different companies. And I was always interested with the small business aspect. It was kind of a 24 seven gig. There was no vacation. You kind of, you know, you got to work, you enjoyed it, but you could make, you know, you can it could be fun for you. It wasn't just a day to day job. Um, so I've always kind of had that. And then as time went on, you know, I always found myself talking to the GMs, talking to the owners, kind of asking all these questions, um, you know, funny enough, going to the seminars and, and, and listening there. And I just felt like I was learning little things that it kept me interested. It wasn't just going for a paycheck. Were you going with like, the intent to learn certain things from certain people or were you just naturally curious, asking
0: questions uh, and just organically coming across these little nuggets of knowledge?
1: In the beginning, it was just asking. It was just pure knowledge. I okay. always hated school, but I always loved learning. Okay. You know, I read all the time, and, and I always enjoyed learning. I just I hated school. I hated sitting there and listening to someone you know, preach for an hour.
0: So what was the first restaurant job for you?
1: First, originally, when I got out of college, was uh, Pizzeria Uno okay. as a server. I actually worked in college uh, back at the house in the kitchen okay. at Applebee's. Not,
0: not to date you, but let's timestamp this. What year are we going back
1: to? Yeah. Uh, college for me, I graduated uh, end of the 90s, 98. Okay. And then after that, uh, I came out. I worked at Pizzeria Uno's uh, back close to where I lived in Dedham, Massachusetts. And worked there for about a year or so. And then randomly actually went down to Faneuil Hall to interview with a gentleman that was going to sail to Ireland. And I wanted to see if I could get on his boat to sail oh, with him. Nice. Um, we had a great interview for about an hour. And near the end, he asked me what my experience was. And I told him absolutely nothing. Oh, man. Um, so that didn't Deal work Deal breaker. Out. <laughs> yeah. So I walked back into Faneuil Hall. And again, dating myself. It was a little different back in the day. Um, but they had interviews going across the street for Todd English, who was a celebrity chef at the time. He had olives. Um And they were opening a place called Kingfish Hall. And I happened just to walk in, meet a gal that was hiring. They were literally training two days from now. She looked at my resume. I had one job and it was at Pizza Uno's. And she kind of just shrugged her shoulders and said, fuck it. All right. And (laughs) so it all started from there.
0: So I mean, taught English, pretty big deal, pretty legit restaurant tour. I'm sure that they didn't mess around. Did you learn a lot of good things working under a restaurant tour like this?
1: I did. I learned a ton. I was definitely the uh, hustle guy. Okay. You know, I wasn't the fine dining, polished uh, wine kind of connoisseur. Um, I remember opening my first bottle of champagne on the patio and not knowing what I was doing and shooting the cork all the way across Faneuil Hall. Uh, <laughs> but they were patient with me. They were helpful, and uh, yeah, I learned a ton about wine, a ton about service. Okay, they were really good about service. How to, you know, how was proper service supposed to be done, even in a busy restaurant like that in Faneuil Hall? So,
0: how did they transform you? Take me to the person you were. I mean, you had some experience. You weren't like clueless. You were working mm-hmm. at pizzeria uno and they're mm. a legitimate company they have their systems their processes their training mm. uh, so you had something from that but where did how did you go from
1: you know pizzeria uno level to taught English level what was that transformation like uh, the GM at the time was Chris Tachio. he was a longtime industry guy um, and he was really great about letting your personality shine through mm. with also teaching you some of the basics how to serve um, how to present wine how to clean a table properly you know a lot of the little things Um, and like I said, I was downstairs. I was definitely the hustle guy. So it was, you know, a combination of what they were teaching you, but also, you know, get people in, get people out sort of thing. So, uh, it was a great first step for me, um, service wise, uh, and wine wise. Beautiful.
0: And really get into detail about, uh, the, the balance between the, uh, the service standards, but also letting your personality come through. How did they teach you to find that balance? And how did they teach you to let that personality come through?
1: Um, <laughs> it's interesting being born and raised in Boston. Cause obviously, you know, a lot of us have a unique personality. Yeah. So it was finding that fine line with the tourists that wanted that flavor of Boston, that conversation, but also doing it, um, with a proper, proper level of service. Um, that's actually something that we bring here to Brewers Fork. We always tell everybody it's jeans and t-shirts, long beards, no problem with any of that. You have to know your service. Mm-hmm. You have to know, you know, you have to know how to describe your beers. You have to know your food. You have to know the makeup. Um, and then, of course, the service uh, style, like we said, of serving a table, cleaning a table. Um, they were really great about not making it seem like Four Seasons, but adding in some of those little touches. What was the culture like at this point? How many, well, how many restaurants did Todd English even have at that point? Because
0: I know it was a pretty big deal restaurant restaurateur. Um, is he still... What's his story today?
1: You know, know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe he still has a couple of restaurants, but that was kind of at his peak where all was had taken off and doing very, very well. Yeah. Um, he, he had a good reputation for sure. And then they had opened up, uh, some of the smaller pizza joints, um, which I forget the name right now. Oh, figs. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Figs was the, uh, pizza joints they had. And it was all, you know, going well. He was definitely on the up trajectory. Um, he was someone to be seen, you know, people would come to the restaurant just to see, Hey, is Todd there? Um, and not to blow up his spot, you know, fifteen years later, but he roll in, you know, at six thirty, put on the chef's coat, walk out, <laughs> wave at everybody, you know, table touch and then out the back door a half hour later. That
0: might know. explain why he's not around anymore. <laughs> uh so <Possibly>. <laughs> going <laughs> forward. Uh I guess I'm curious, you, you said he you went out to Malibu, that's where you really learned about food. Uh what
1: was it like with the Malibu group? They were great. Actually, originally when I went out there, I stayed uh, in Venice Beach. That's where I stayed for about six years, and I got a job in Santa Monica to begin with. It was actually kind of tough timing. I moved out to the week before September 11th. So September 11th hit, and there was really nothing to be done for about six months. Couldn't get a job. Just really nothing was happening. And then a new spot in Santa Monica was opening up, um, Joffrey's in Malibu. Was Jeff's uh, first spot. And then he opened up a second spot there in uh, Santa Monica. It was a great experience for me. Brand new, another new opening after Kingfish was another opening for me. Uh, big Squad. It was a 10,000 square foot restaurant. Wow. Um, how many seats was that? Man, I have to say maybe 225 somewhere. Wow. They had a big private diner. They did a lot with the kind of Hollywood scene. We did a lot of buyouts for movie premieres or rap parties, things like that. Okay. Um, how many, and it was great. How many years did he spend there total? I'm going to say I was there maybe a year, year and a half. Okay. And then randomly a gal, I, I just moved from serving onto the bar and uh, really enjoyed it. It was like two or three months on the bar. They had a really good team at the time. And a gal that worked there had interviewed for a new place in Malibu with the Malibu group called The Sunset that was opening up. And she didn't fit what they were looking for, but had said to Vito, who was the gentleman that I worked for, um, you know, this other guy that I work with, he's who you should talk to. Um, so she came in and told me that, kind of played the middleman for that set up a meeting and I went and spoke with them and uh this was end of the fall and they were getting ready to open you know November December and I told him you know I'm going home to Boston to visit my family for Christmas and he said you know you can't go you need to stay and open this restaurant and I said I'm going yeah. so they didn't give me the job and then when I came back after vacation uh he called me and said you know can you come back in so it worked out great for me
0: nice so you uh, went home on vacation and you went back out west yeah uh and they wasn't there something you mentioned earlier about shitting or getting out the pot?
1: Were you opening restaurants with them? Was there- that was later on. Okay. So I worked for the Malibu group for a while, and things went great. It was a wonderful restaurant. I don't know if you know Malibu at all, but it was right on Point Doom. It was, you know, you look out the window, and it's dolphins and uh, and uh, surfers and everything every day. So it was just beautiful. I rode my motorcycle to work every day. Nice. I couldn't beat it. And uh, after a while, I want to say I was there maybe a year, year and a half, same type of uh, timeline. Start to finish, not to sense Correct. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, but with with Malibu
0: Group at Sunset, with the trip back east in the mix, a year and a
1: half total. Yes. Exactly. Okay, so I gotcha. went home. Right. It came back after Christmas, and they were like, "Hey, you know, come in." So you must have been doing know. something right.
0: If uh, in a year and a half, like they want you to stick around and help them open restaurants, what were you doing? Like, how was your work ethic? Like, take me through the way you presented yourself, and you, uh,
1: you hustle. Just take me through that. Real quick. Sure. Um, you know, hard to toot your own horn, but. Um, you know being in Boston, born and raised from a big family, you kind of learn a certain work ethic, yeah, and not to shit on anyone on the West Coast, but a lot of them were want to be actors or models or singers, and I was there to work yeah um, you know so i 'd go in open i 'd stay closed, and the gentleman that I worked for specifically was Vito, uh, he had the same kind of similar work ethic, and I really enjoyed being there, as I mentioned earlier. I, I love being around entrepreneurs, people that have done it, and uh, you know I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, whether it was restaurants or not, so just being there with them you know, being able to fix the little things. Uh, if something breaks, you don't just call somebody, you'll come back and you fix it yourself. Um, the downstairs bar had a bar area and also a lounge area. So they started out with a bartender, myself, and then a, a cocktail person after, you know, a couple weeks, I was like, you don't need this person. I can handle this. I can move in and out. Yeah. Um, it sounds and, like
0: you just took initiative. Yeah, totally. I totally what have Just take initiative, there, yeah. uh, do it, do it, and ask for forgiveness later, right? And if, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and if you are constantly being yelled at, then maybe, like, that's a sign. But if you're there. not being yelled at, and you're doing the right thing, and you're, like, on track, then maybe that's also a sign that you're in the right business. Uh, and people, I mean, think about that—that that, the speed of that, the efficiency of that. When you have somebody who doesn't have to come to you with every decision they have to make, right? When they just take care of it. Sure. Those are the kind of people you want to promote. Those are the kind of people that you want to be at the top, leading everybody else. Else. You're 100% right, especially yep.
1: as you know, looking at it back now as an owner, looking back. When you come to work and someone says, hey, Michael, I, uh, I did this, this, and this. And you're like, wow, that's great. Like, Thank you so much for taking the initiative, like you said. Now, occasionally, you'll have people that maybe try something and it didn't go the way you wanted it. So you have to go back and kind of touch it up or fix it. Yeah. But that's what you want. You want that initiative. You want the younger folks in the, in the business to say, hey, I gave this a shot because I thought I could fix this or I could do this. Yeah. That's uh, so great. What was the biggest lesson you took from the Malibu Group? Uh, how to how to deal with with people? You okay. know, it's a really high end clientele, as you can imagine. Um, a lot of black cards got left at the bar, and we would call and say, "Hey, you left your card. Oh, I'll come in a couple of days and get it." You know, it's, it's that sort of thing. <laughs> so, how
0: do you deal with people?
1: Um, you take everything with a grain of salt. You know, people who have uh, a lot of money generally aren't used to the word no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you got to find a way to give them what they want. And a lot of times make it seem like it's their idea.
0: Don't say no. Offer solutions, right? Correct. Yeah. Offer options. Sure. Uh, so take me through a time where you do that. Can you think of a specific example of where you had to navigate this uh, socially awkward situation
1: where somebody wants something but you can't give it to them? Uh, well, it was a long time ago, but I can give you some sort of similarities. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of it would have to do with service. You know, yep. people that maybe had too much to drink. You know, Mm. things like that. You can take the most famous person in the world, but after four or five gin and tonics, they're still just a person who's a little tipsy, you know? So navigating that sort of thing, people that aren't used to the the way to say no, you kind of approach the table or, you know, at the bar and and you got to have that banter. You got to have them trust you that you're making the right decision for them. That it's not a, Mm. you know, shutting someone off just to be an asshole or shutting someone off because you want to.
0: You just said something that really struck a chord with me, uh, doing something for them. Mm. People can smell it. When you're doing something for them versus doing something to them, hundred percent, and it's a whole different uh, energy when you're when ser- when you're working for somebody, when you're serving somebody for them, and you're mm-hmm. on their team mm-hmm. versus going through the motions and serving like acting on them, sure. right? Um, do you teach your people that to this day, like the difference between? 100%. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, you just
1: mentioned is so huge. You, when you approach, we always say the same thing, it, just to bring it to the next step. We always say that there's there's no mistakes. So, you know, you come and you ordered, uh, you know, XYZ off our menu and they actually wanted something else. Great. That's not a mistake. We have this beautiful dish sitting in the window. How do we use this? Another another server, another bartender will come right over and say, mistake? Yes, of course. I've got regs at sixteen seventeen. This is perfect. I was going to ring in a moose for them. We'll drop this right down. Great. No problem. Yeah. No mistakes. It's all how you handle it.
0: And even like like Danny Meyer says, like writing the end of the story, when you do have a quote-unquote mistake, if there is one, it's about how you handle it afterwards. Like, Are you pissed off because they're not okay with your mistake? Or are you so eager to make it right? Mm-hmm. You're on their side. Like, I messed up. Like, How can we make this right? Sure. And they know when you're on their side. Just being on their side. 100 uh, Being for them. I love it. They so, being the guest, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, what about mentors here? Any key mentors that are worth bringing to the, the forefront? People that you learned a lot about how to be.
1: For sure. Kind of going in reverse, starting early. Uh, I mentioned that I worked at Pizzeria Uno, which is funny enough, a lot of people... We talked a little bit earlier. Mentor, for me, is kind of a tough word because people they put this really shining golden light on someone being a mentor. And really to me, that word mentor just means someone that might've had an influence on you. Um, you know, someone that helped you in a certain way and, uh, going all the way back to Pizzeria Uno, there was, there was a bartender. Uh, his name was Kurt. It's funny. I was thinking about our interview and his name popped into my head. That's legitimately 20 years ago. And he was a Pizzeria Uno bar. You can picture him. You can picture him in the outfit and the whole bit. And he kind of was like Steve Buscemi he had screwed up teeth and whatnot, <laughs> but he had swagger, you know, when he was yeah. behind a bar it was his bar. and, I was young, like you mentioned, the hustle and he saw it and you know, he he would teach me little things about what's important and what's not and the biggest thing that I took from him was, you know, your bar is your bar, you need to make people feel comfortable there. Mm. People want to feel like they're they're part of your bar, they want to feel like regulars, they wanna enjoy themselves. It has nothing to do with did you make the best XYZ cocktail and how many fucking syrups do you have over there? You know, it was all about making people feel comfortable at your bar and having regulars. And seeing that, seeing him, like I said, he wasn't the best looking guy. He wasn't the most well kept, but he knew how to treat people. He knew mm. how to talk to the lawyers. He knew how to talk to the blue collar plumber guy. He knew how to talk to the group of ladies that were coming in just to have drinks that night, you know. And he was great. He was definitely very influential when I was younger. Um, Chris Taccio, I mentioned, he's, um, I don't know if you know the name or not, but he, after Kingfish, he was around for a long time. I believe he opened um, Regal Beagle, which is in Brookline, and then Church, which was in Boston down in the Fenway area. I don't know what else he had, but um, he was great. You know, he was older than me, but. We saw eye to eye for sure. And, uh, he kind of, you know, he showed me the ways in a lot of ways of how to still have your personality, but, uh, you know, do things proper. I love you it. Do things, do things great. And then the last person that was really important to me was the gentleman Vito that I mentioned out in Malibu group. He was only a few years older than me and he was, he was doing it. He was making it happen. He had left his day job to pursue this dream. He worked with his uncle, which was part of the Malibu group. And, uh, they were great. His big thing was he was kind of going back to what we talked about with mistakes. He was always, just relax. It's just food and beverage. You know, yeah. We can handle any situation. No big deal. Awesome. You
0: know? Great. Thank you for going into that. Yes. So let's
1: bring it back. You move back uh, east.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you get on with Public House? Is that the first
1: No, actually, you? when I came back, as I said, I went to real estate and I f- hated it. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I keep swearing. No, that's right. <laughs> um, And I, I will not censor you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hated it. It, it just sucked. So... Um, I had a friend that worked at Ceriso which was um, if you know the way Zygamot Ceriso was his sister restaurant so I picked up like just two nights a week bartending and uh, you know after a couple of months I realized this is really what I enjoy um, so I came on full time um, eventually became the bar manager relatively quick after that and what year and then, is it at this point? oh jeez you date me uh, let's see I think I was there six or seven years so I'm going to say 2008 2008 okay yeah. so you left 2008 I started at Ceriso 2008. Okay. And worked there for a few years, um, you know, as the bar manager. And then at some point, one of the gals that um, worked at Le Zigomont was a friend of ours. She worked at Public House. And the ideas were starting to brew together. Uh, John Payne, who's my partner, who was a chef of both restaurants. We had been talking a lot. I was, you know, very much getting into craft beer. At this time, it was, you know, Dogfish 60 Minute was like the big, you know, beer at the time, the hoppy, hoppy beer. And so, uh, I knew that I had to get more education in craft beer, and uh, anyone who knows the craft beer industry knows that Public House is the best craft beer bar that we have in New England and has been for a long time.
0: So, were you working two jobs at one point? I uh, was, yeah, Ceriso and the Public House. Correct. Uh, so, when you got to in two thousand eight, mm. uh, at this point of your life, you're like, "All right, this is my jam. Like, I'm here to learn. I'm here to network to to find the right people to
1: to go one day open my own business." It was. It was half that. I loved the fact that the gentleman that owned the restaurant allowed me to do what I want. So I had explained to him that craft beer was coming around, that we're right there in the financial district. This is going to be a thing. You know, Let me kind of take it next level on the craft beer. And also I knew that I didn't have any money. And so I needed to find folks that would eventually invest in me opening a restaurant that had money and what better place to do that than financial district.
0: So what was it about Ceriso that made you choose after getting plenty of experience under your belt? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're a lot more mature at this point in your life mm-hmm. uh, emotionally. Uh, was there any strategy about choosing
1: this restaurant to work for? It was mostly the ability to run my own show, which is huge. It's very difficult in the restaurant world. So Usually,
0: what why what, what, what position were you applying for? Did you apply for
1: it? J- I started as a bartender. Okay, but then it eventually became the bar manager. Okay, and kind of ran the show um, there, um, and that was great experience. You know, you, you really get to dive in and do your ideas, your cocktails, your beer program. Um, we did have a gentleman to do the wine, which was great for me because I knew a, a little bit about wine, but it was mostly California because where I was, so I really got a good exposure to Italian wine there, um, and then next door Le Zygmunt, the sister restaurant had a big French wine list, which was great to learn about that as far as having drinks over there and whatnot. So yeah, that was a big part of it was being able to run the own show to gain your own experience it 's really hard for a lot of young restaurant people is you know they want to do more, they want to learn more, but there 's not a lot of room either just for experience or to grow. So they feel like they're getting stifled as a server or a bartender or in some cases a manager. And they, you know, they get stuck being a manager for a year or two without being able to explore and grow. That's one of the problems I think I have with our industry is that there's really no other way for people that want to grow to try anything besides the walls that they're within. So if you work for Road 34 or Brewers 4 or Cotoro, that's what you know. And that's great. They're good restaurants. But you got to be able to to learn other ways. I think that's something that's missing.
0: Yeah. You're, I'm so happy that you're saying this, not to take the, the conversation off of you, but one of, of my visions for a restaurant unstoppable, we talk about it, like it the, the saying, a melting pot of mentors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the whole idea of people thinking they have to go to culinary school or to hospitality management school after high school is just absurd. Like there's tons of people that are willing to teach you the industry hands-on while you're making money, not getting deep in the hole, right? Uh, and when you're young, just get out there and go give every restaurant tour that you admire a year of your time, a a year and a half, two years of your time Mm -hmm. and learn something, but be strategic, like go work for the people that are doing what you want to do and work, bust your ass for them. And I hope that in the future, as I evolve restaurant stoppable, it can be a hub for mentors to connect with, uh, what's the word I can never think of this word. Uh, apprentice, you know, doing, oh, yeah. creating an apprentice course, program, yeah, helping yeah. people connect. And I'm right That's there a, with you.
1: It's 100% a great idea. And one thing you mentioned is, you know, if you really like something, you find someone that does what you're doing and then learn from them. But I would also add, find something that you don't normally enjoy, something you think is outside your box, and then find somebody and work in that, you know, arena really nice yeah. as well.
0: Absolutely. But you can only do it when you're young, when you don't have any liabilities. And guess what? When you graduate from the Culinary Institute of America, you're going to have a big old liability, sure. a big, you know, lead ball that you're going to be carrying around that's going to inhibit you from getting out there and trying
1: different things because you won't be able to afford it because you're okay. to pay those bills. And to take this conversation, another step going the other direction, that that's kind of the same as folks that want to open really creative and fun restaurants. Yeah. But when you're looking at 65 70 $75 a square foot, you can't necessarily be, you know, all this creative and and random ideas that you have about doing different programs, you got to do what's going to sell. Yeah. So it's difficult. Awesome.
0: So you went to uh, Ceriso. I don't know why I'm struggling saying this. Ceriso. Am I saying it right? Ceriso. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You you head over here because uh, you wanted to be able to do your own thing, have freedom to explore. Uh, You're going over to the public house because you knew that the future was uh, craft brewery and you wanted to go learn from these people. Uh, And also the other big thing I took from this, you want, was it the financial district? Was that where it was? Correct. Yeah. So you wanted to, to get into a community where you start networking with potentially future investors. Uh, and I love that you pointed that part out because one thing I love to say has come up on the show a couple of times from other guests too, is that you're, you're on a job interview every day of your life in this industry because you never know where that, in, that next investor is going to be. percent. Uh, treat everybody like they're going to be the next investor in mm-hmm. your restaurant and mm-hmm. develop those relationships. Cause really it's about those relationships. People don't invest in your restaurant. They invest in you. So yeah, do you want to reflect on what I just said?
1: Everything you just said is 100% true. For for anyone who's young and out there or old and out there that wants to try to open a restaurant, every minute that you're doing something, whether it's at a restaurant or not, people are watching you. Yeah. And you don't realize it, but you are. It's the way yeah. you talk, the way you act, the things you say. Um, the friends that you surround yourself with. And that was 100% what you said was for me. Every day I went to Ceriso, I thought of it as an interview. I thought of myself being on stage at a play or a musical, and these people are watching me. Okay. Uh, and it was huge. So
0: it's, I have to know, when you when you had the vision for Brewers Fork and mm-hmm. you started talking to, at uh, this time, this is where you met your future business partner too, John Payne, uh, what was going on? Like, Take us through that evolution
1: of just bringing it all together.
0: And if you did have any customers that eventually were
1: investors. Sure. Um, I'll take it kind of in two phases. The first part with John, we used to sit, you know, you finish up work, sit down, you have a glass of wine Um, and we would talk all the time and they they were very straightforward conversations. What's good in a restaurant? What makes sense? And then lastly, what can make money?
0: Right now you're doing the vision. You're creating the vision. You're painting that picture. Were you writing it down?
1: 100%. Yes. Right behind you on that wall is all those books from years ago with all the stupid you know pictures in it i love it and like we said earlier you know it's i thought i wanted to do a certain thing and it changed and it grew and it developed and it's funny when you flip through the books and you look at them it's like oh man i was thinking this in 2012 look where we were in 2013 and then 2014 um but conversation i would definitely suggest that for for any you know budding entrepreneur talk 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 get everything out there write everything down yeah keep it going keep it going because you're gonna you're gonna whittle that down into what really you want um, second half of that was investors. Yeah. Two of our um, equity investors were regulars from the bar at Sarisa.
0: Okay. Uh, real quick, dialing it back to getting it all out and talking about it too. I'm also a, I'm an advocate for the business partner. A lot of people will say don't have business partners, don't go into partnerships. They're the worst thing. But I think that partnerships don't work when you have bad partners. Uh, so it's a matter of doing the things that a partnership needs, like having a partnership agreement, like defining clear lanes, right. And mm-hmm. envision and doing the visioning, right. And, and being on the same page as far as what the vision is. So I guess to come full circle, how was it that you and John, Got on the same page. What things did you do in writing it down, and how did how did you make sure that you're going in the same direction that you want the same thing? Because I think that's a big reason why partnerships develop, dissolve, because they're people are pulling in different
1: directions. Agreed. Partnerships are very difficult thing. It's uh, easily described as another marriage. So I'm married, and then I have my work partner, and it's very much like a marriage. There's a give and take. There's things that he's really strong on that he says, you know, I I think it needs to be this way, okay. And then I say, you know, I think we need to do things this way. And he says, okay. And you bend, you go back and forth. Um, I am am like you. I think a partnership is very, very important for many reasons. One is peace of mind. Um, Usually if you pick a partner, don't pick someone that's just like you, right? Pick someone that, in my scenario, John is a great chef, back of the house, Um, front of the house is kind of my thing. So the two of us kind of blend well with each other in that aspect for business. But also personality-wise, you know, there's part part of the partnership is where John is very strong and there's other parts of the partnership where I'm very strong. And it's a, it's a great way to, to kind of mend and, and, uh, and work well together, uh, clearly to find roles, something you mentioned very important. People need to know what their job is. Otherwise, you know, you'll end up doing too much of this and then they end up doing too much of that. Um, also very important. So how long did you and John's,
0: uh, work together before the conversation started?
1: I want to say we actually talked about it I would say at least three years. Okay. It would start with a conversation.
0: I think that's the other key element right there is that, you know, it wasn't like he got hired or you got hired and the day you guys met at work, you're like, let's open a restaurant. Like you got to know this person, you knew who they were and and you, you could, you got to the point where there was that level of trust there, admiration, respect,
1: and that takes time to evolve. hundred percent. You need to know that if if you're going to open any business, but especially a restaurant, it is 24-7. It's it's blood, sweat, and tears. So you need to know if you partner with somebody that that person has the same vision you have. Mm. If you partner with somebody because maybe they're bringing money to the table or maybe they have a lot of connections or something like that, it's never going to work. You need to make sure that each person is equally involved and ready to make it happen.
0: So that kind of is a good segue to the next Topic, which is you know partnering with people to bring money to the table. Ultimately, you did go to investors. Mm-hmm. Um, you did go to your guests at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you navigate those waters? Uh, approaching people that you think you have rapport with, that you know has
1: money. How? What's the right way to do that? How did you do that? Um, being ready, being confident. You need to be confident in yourself. There is nothing hotter than looking someone in the eye and saying, "Can I borrow?" X amount of dollars, and here's how I'm going to pay you back, and here's what you're going to get for it, and blah, blah, blah. It is so hard because you're not going to ask a stranger. You're going to ask people that you know, people that you trust, because you're never going to take money from someone you don't trust, and you're asking them to look you in the eye and trust you on a really risky venture, restaurants. They're just risky. That's what they are. Um, So for me, it it went two ways. I I can't stress enough for people out there who want to try to borrow money from people, Make sure you make the right choices. I've heard so many horror stories where people have partners, silent partners, just strip, uh, straight up investors who they just have a really hard relationship with. And that is a recipe for disaster.
0: So how do you avoid those hard relationships? What is it that you did to protect yourself from those hard relationships? And You, you got get- to get
1: to know the people. Okay. You can't say, hey, I'm going to open a restaurant and then two months later go raise the money you got to take your time. So what qualities do
0: your investors... Do you have investors? I don't want to make assumptions. We do. Yeah. When we
1: started out, we have uh, five equity investors. Okay.
0: So how did you uh, choose these people? Like what level of trust? What were the characteristics that these people had? What were those qualities, those elements?
1: Sure. Uh, It goes back to what you said earlier, which is each one of them said that they were investing in us and not the business. So when you bring them to the space, this Fork space was an old Tuttle's dry cleaners it was beat up and shitty and gross and each one of them kind of said the same thing when they came here okay like (laughs) uh you know even my wife i remember looking at me being like all right i trust you but like i not seeing it yeah you know um they all would say if they were sitting in this room that they invested in us and not so much you know pizza and beer big deal you know whatever but uh you know that that is number one. the The length of time, like I said, if you're gonna if you're planning on opening a business, no matter what it is, you need to take time. You can't rush into it, and you, and you have to kind of. I don't want to use the word five vet, years, but, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We talked about all sorts of different things. You know, we travel. Like John and I, would travel together too. You know, go to New York. You, you you research places. Like you, you really need to see how you get on. You know, they know to be a best friend they're your business partner but you got to be able to know when the shit hits the fan that you can talk about it figure out a business decision and how to make the best decision for the business and then move on and that was the same with the investors it was like listen this is what we're doing we're raising money and we wrote it right into our into our um, offer was you know you guys are going to be silent partners you know this is what we do for a living and we're going to work our ass off to make sure we get back your money and then hopefully money in the future but you're going to be a silent partner What do those terms look like that relationship of a silent partner how do you set that up uh, one of our investors, actually a, a good friend of mine, he helped us draw up everything and it was really kind of black and white as far as this is what it is. This is what we're going to borrow. This is what you're getting for when that. When you say what it is, this is the business? Meaning like th- this is the business. Okay. So here's our business plan. You read it, you'll get it. Here's the financials. Here's what we expect to do, which, you know, as we all know, financials are your best guesstimate. You don't really know until you open the doors, what's going to happen. And then once things open up, here's what we plan to do. Um, and if you have, you know, I consider them, you know, they're partners. I know they're silent partners and equity investors, but they're partners. They they had a, a big part of us being able to open brewers Fork and being able to draw it out correctly so that they know they're part of the family. But when it comes to decision making, it's actually the hands-on, you know, uh, managing partners that make those decisions. You really need to make sure that's clear. If you don't and you get a, a gentleman or a lady that's like, hey, I'm going to put an extra amount of money, but I really want to like, you know, come down here and tell you how to fill the salt shakers like, you <laughs> yeah. know, that's not that's not gonna so how do you long.
0: work that into how do you put that into words to make sure that everyone's on the same page and there are no lines being crossed
1: uh, you just need to be straight up and yeah. frankly you just need to be blunt you need to say this yeah, the is very what it's going to be though. 100% yeah. yeah when you first Set do an standard. offer sheet you need to show them and say this is what we're thinking It does this interest you mm-hmm. you know this amount of money for this percentage for this you know the whole bit and then be very blunt with the this is how we're going to run things and we love you but You're not going to come in here and tell us, you know, oh, I think the pizza is good, but it could be better this way. Or, you know, this craft beer is great. Why don't you serve that all the time?
0: So one other thing I'm curious about, uh, how do you project the repayment structure like how does that look when you, you have these silent investors are they lifelong investors or is there a plan to, to buy them out in the future how do you set that up how do you
1: plan through that sure there's a thousand different ways to do it and I would suggest for any young entrepreneur to really ask a lot of questions that's I, why I'm trying to find out uh, right now. <laughs> yeah definitely and we're open you know I'm happy to talk to anyone thank about you it. for being open too. of course we I talked to as many business owners as I could and said you know how did you do it how did you do it um, the way that we structured it was equity investors and then friends and family friends and family are great it's it's smaller amounts of money but it's a loan so they make you know uh, for us I believe it was 8% on their money while we borrowed it and then we had planned to pay them off within three years for the equity investors there was no timing on it which I would highly suggest for anybody is we borrowed your money we're going to pay you back the money's going to grow at say that 8% until we can pay you back but don't handcuff yourself. Don't put yourself at like a two-year or a four-year. Sometimes it takes a little time. Sometimes months are better than other months and it's high and low. Um, and so we, we structured it that way. And then once we paid off all of the equity investors, they got a piece of the company. I think that point right there that you just laid out, not
0: having it open-ended and definite is key in why you go to people who are investing in you and not the business because mm-hmm. it's, it's a they're they like you they trust you you've developed rapport a relationship they're in a place where they can help other people mm-hmm. and it's not about the money it's about the person mm-hmm. and when you can get to that level and you can and you can get investors because that wanted that they, they can take you know twenty thousand dollars and just burn it right there and like they're willing yeah. to do that because they're investing in you and they want to see you become successful
1: that's where the magic is i agree with you 100 percent if you're on the opposite side and you're someone with money, it's, it's hard to hear, you know, a young entrepreneur say, Hey, just trust me. I promise I'll pay you back. I'm not going to put a deadline on it. But also, as you just mentioned, if you're investing in the person and you're smart, you know, they're going to work their ass off. So putting an arbitrary three year, three and a half year, four year must pay mark doesn't make sense for anyone.
0: Yeah. Uh, one other thing that was really interesting to me, and I don't think we spent enough time on it. Uh, you went over to, uh, the public house to learn about craft brewing or craft beer and craft brewing. Uh, what was that like um, when they? How did you approach that situation? They knew that you were working full time as a bar manager mm. at another restaurant. Mm. Um, were they open to you coming in? Were they standoffish? Like, are you here to, to steal our secrets? Like, what was nah. what was that like?
1: <laughs> so, at the time when I started with them, I just I wanted to learn. Um, But I didn't, you know, have a space yet. I didn't have a lease or anything like that. So, you know, like every other wannabe bartender, I would talk about wanting to open a bar and I'm, okay, good, good, good for you, you know. Mm. But I did did two nights with them to start and then um, they actually had another restaurant that unfortunately didn't work well. So they brought their full-time staff uh, over and here's another good point for uh, young people don't ever get, you know disappointed in yourself they had to let me go because i was part-time and they had a full-time guy that they had to bring on um so but, they closed another restaurant and to take care of their full-time employees they absorb
0: those employees into the public house 100 percent. okay
1: well that which is the right thing to do it's 100 the right them. thing to do and yeah. i remember specifically having the phone call with david who's one of the owners and you know he you know he was like i'm really sorry you know you're a great worker this and that." i said i totally get it you know this is exactly what you should do and if there's any openings in the future let me know And lucky enough, about three or four months later, he called me back and said, hey, I want you back. I said, all I can do is Saturday nights. You know, that's all I have available. He said, that's fine. I want you to be part of the team. So it worked out great. Nice. So so the, I, I love that,
0: that you did this. You made this move to go to the public house to learn. And that's really what, the only reason why we should be taking jobs. You shouldn't be taking a job for what you're going to make. It's going to be what new skills you're going to pick up, what knowledge you're going to pick up, who you're going to be networking with. Mm-hmm. Those should be determining what jobs you take. Uh, and you, at this point, before you took the job, you you knew that you wanted to open your own restaurant at this time, so mm-hmm. you're going to work for another job to to be intentional about where you're going, so you can get that specific knowledge. You want to dive into that at all? Why that's so important?
1: Sure, hundred percent. I mean, obviously, a lot of people that work in restaurants are here to work to make money because they want to go to school or they're studying to be a nurse or whatever the case may be. Those of us that are, you know, have, a, have visions of opening a restaurant, I agree with you, hundred percent. You should be at a place where you can learn something and it doesn't have to be positive. You know, another restaurant that I worked at, I was there and making good money, but I was learning a lot of ways how not to do things. Mm -hmm. And that was in some ways even more important to me. I realized what worked, what didn't. And, kind of what works in the long run versus taking the shortcuts to try to get where you're going. Um, For me at Public House, it was great as time went on and I was learning more and my vision was starting to become more of a reality. There was a lot of support there. And a lot of restaurants, restaurant owners, uh, don't do that. You know, if they think that someone that works for them is going to do their own project, they get really slighted and and then it's a bad relationship and they end up probably just firing that person. And to me, that's absolutely terrible. If you have someone that works for you that's really hardworking and they want to open up their own business, you should be encouraging and teaching and, and maybe in best case scenario, helping to finance that project and, and keep yourself involved. So that way, you know, as the owner, you can expand your businesses and, and carry on. Um me house, that one more time. I want to make sure I heard you right. So a lot of people that want to open restaurants, they'll work somewhere. And as soon as the owners find out that they want to do their own project, or they might be talking about doing a project, they'll, they'll can them, they'll fire them or they'll, you know, treat them differently, whatever the case may be. And, For me and our philosophy here at Brewers Fork and I hope a lot more restaurants is that if you have someone that's young and and hardworking and and smart and they want to open up their own business, you should be encouraging that. And whether it's just a slap on the back and encouragement the next level of education and showing them some things so they don't make mistakes or hopefully the third level where if you've done well and now you could put some of your own money behind that employee and help them grow and start their dream, which is also smart for you because then hopefully if you invest in them and the company does well, then that's another side business for you and on and on and on it goes. That to me is the way it should be. I,
0: I have a secret. Um, I heard you perfectly the first time. I just wanted to make you sure I want you to say that again because you're you're dead on. And that's what capitalism is. If you open a business, you should go into that business with the mindset that you're gonna be creating opportunities for other people. Sure. That's what capitalism if you do well, it's your responsibility to give to pay it forward to help out other people, and sure. that's that's what you know. We're all stronger together, right? It's not about 100%. you being the biggest fish in the pond. It's about creating a, a pond with a thriving ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, I love that. Uh, and, and even another thing, you mentioned a few options of, of ways you can support these people. But but if, if you know exactly what they want to do, they want to go open their own business and they want to do something similar to somebody that you know, who's already doing it, then say, Hey, go work for this guy. Mm-hmm. Like get rid of them. It's your job to push people out of your restaurant. Mm-hmm. And when you have that mentality, you can't, you, you turn away so many people because you develop a reputation, like go work for this guy. Like you're going to learn a lot. They're going to, it's hard. It takes time to, to build up to that point. Very much. But it. it's, it's why do you think people are so uh, closed off or re- or are not willing to, to keep people on when they want to learn or make it be known that they want to open their own place. What, what is that? Where does that stem from? Like what is it
1: fear? Or is it? Yeah. Personally, I think everyone's just scared. Yeah. People, I think a lot of people wake up in the morning and go to work and aren't a hundred percent sure about what they're doing. So if they hear that someone that works with them is going to go try their own thing, it's instantly a feeling of competition yeah. instead of camaraderie.
0: So we haven't really talked about some of the people you worked with at um the public house and i don't know why it's not a hard word Sorriso. there you go <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh were there any people that really stood out to you at these restaurants people that you learned from
1: that uh taught you different things of not just what to do but how to be uh sure uh public house was a huge influence uh david that i mentioned earlier alish uh they're the owners of the public house uh great people to work for they're they're you know hardworking, blue collar, you know, go to work, do their job. Uh, I couldn't ask for a better environment to be in. And then funny enough, you know, people, always again, go back to that word mentor. People put this big golden dome on a mentor. Um, A mentor can be as simple as someone that you work with, you know, a fellow bartender. Um, There are so many great staff at the public house. It is just uh, an amazing place to work. You realize that coming to work and working from 2 till 3 in the morning that's just a regular shift, yeah. right? That's in a lot of restaurants or a lot of people in the world, you know, eight hours seems to be like, oh God, what a long day. And that's like a half a shift, you know, in the restaurant <laughs> yeah. world. Um, Brian McGee, who still works over at Public House, he worked us- with us here, helped us open up uh, Brewer's Fork. He's great. He's one of my favorite bartenders in all Brian the city. McGee, that name sounds familiar. Uh, he's, he's an industry uh, <laughs> uh, celebrity for sure.
0: Um, it's funny you mentioned the eight hours being a, sh- a short day, and uh, some people would call twelve hours
1: a half day. Yeah, in this industry, totally, especially <laughs> back of those house. You know, <laughs> yeah. I always, I always laugh when you see other people and you know they come in and they bitching about their long week. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, you go to work at nine, you leave at four. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. That's what I hear. But yeah, I mean, public house. If I don't know if you had a chance to be there or if your listeners go to public house, but it is. Uh, it's a great bar. Give me one thing you learned from the
0: owners. You just mentioned their name. I forgot them already. What were
1: the name? Uh, David and Alish.
0: David and Eilish. Give me uh, one lesson you learned from them that you apply to your business to this day. Uh, taking care of your staff. Mm. You know, treat, treating them like family. Paint that picture of what taking care of your staff looks like.
1: Um, I don't want to get too personal, and too many stories, but uh, <laughs> you know, there's a. I won't hold you back. A lot of restaurants will give a scenario of you know someone comes to work and they're having a hard day. They're sick. You know, maybe grandma's sick or passed away or something like that a lot of restaurants will look at it and say ah you're at work you know do your job not at publicos and and that that is a culture that they built there where you know someone might come to work and they're under the weather and right away the staff will be like send them home we'll handle it you know one or two extra tables in our section no big deal the hostess will run around do a bit more bartenders will run around and help clean tables and whatnot instead of just standing back there as individuals they do it as a family Um, and that was something that really sunk in on me When we ended up opening up Brewer's Fork, we do a pooled house. And a lot of people say, oh, pooled house, foreign bar. No, we do a pooled house. Everyone works together. Bartenders run drinks, hostesses clean tables, you know, the servers get back there and help with the dish pit. I mean, if you come and you sit at the bar at Brewer's Fork and you watch... You're gonna you're gonna see so much more action because everyone's working. They're working together to help each other. And that was definitely something that I went to a public house. Yes, man. I love this. So
0: we're at forty five minutes of recording time already. It goes right. by so fast. <laughs> I wanna make sure we spend the mess the rest of our time talking about uh brewers fork uh how you made it happen Uh, we talked a lot we kind of set it up a little bit with getting the investors and spending time in the industry to find your partners to find your investors to develop those relationships to get the clarity on what you want to do and then to live intentionally to make it happen Mm -hmm. uh but you now you got the money you got the partner you got the vision you're making it happen let's bring it to that point how did you find this location what were you looking for
1: uh, as mentioned before, we worked for a long time. You know, We worked north, we worked south, we worked in the city, we worked all over the place. <clears throat> we had some pretty specific things we wanted. We wanted a single-story building, we wanted to be able to have a patio. Uh, we wanted a neighborhood that would understand what we were doing. Um, you know, We describe Brewersfolk as pizza and craft beer, but the reality is... It, there's a lot more going on. John's an amazing chef. So there's a lot more going on with the food. Uh, our wine list—you know, people that drink wine—it's—it's uh, it's like a hidden little secret to come over here. Um, Carrie, who admittedly is my wife, but uh, does an amazing job on the wine list, and we get so many industry that come in on you know Sunday, Mondays, and Tuesdays, and you look up and down this quote-unquote craft beer bar, and you see it lined with you know glasses or bottles of wine. It—it um, it, it was. Charlestown itself needed something like, like we wanted to bring here the beer, the wine, the food. Um, you mentioned Danny Meyer earlier being in New York years ago, Karen, and I went by Gramercy Tavern and it was one of the first times I'm looking around and thinking I can have a great craft beer. I can have a great cocktail. I can have great wine, obviously surrounded by this beautiful space and this, and this great food. Um, And it just wasn't like that. You know, when we were doing our research, I would type in craft beer and pizza in Boston and you would get, you know, Public House and other places for craft beer and you get Pizzeria Uno and other spots for pizza. And you never really had a spot that was a restaurant with high quality beverage as well, you know, for food and and beverage when it came to pizza and craft beer. Um, So we love Charleston. I had a lot of regulars at Ceriso where I worked that were from Charleston. And, and, you know, people knew that I was looking to find a space and they would say, come check out Charleston. Come check out Charleston. And we'd look around and there's just not a lot of... um, commercial space in Charlestown, So this was an old dry cleaners that we looked at and, you know, like a mother who loves an ugly child, we were like, this is it. You know, this, yeah. is, this is our What did
0: you stuff. see when you first saw it? Like what was it that appealed to you? Obviously that there was nothing like it, what you want to do. There's not a lot of competition, but what was it about the physical space that, that really resonated with you?
1: It had that real industrial look. Um, you know, next to us is our landlords, which is the McCarthy brothers. They're the oldest running business in Charleston since 1888. You know, so they're they're the, the blood, sweat, and tears type people of Charlestown. Their grandfather used to be on a horse and buggy delivering booze up oh, and down the street. Crazy. You know. So we knew that we wanted an old timey type feel and the space just had it had brick, it had the high ceilings. Um we knew that down here it's Hay Square, there's a lot of history here. Um that it kinda had, had not fallen on high times, but it wasn't as vibrant as it as it once was. And I was very excited about the history of the space and the area and, and what we can kind of bring to this neighborhood. Uh, there's a ton of families and kids here and we were excited by that you know we wanted to have something that parents could come down and you know have a glass of wine have a beer have some good food the kids could have pizza meatballs whatever and uh and everyone would be happy what were your biggest challenges getting the doors open because you originally wanted to open 2014
0: correct but you didn't get the doors open until 2015 so what things what what blindsided you what what did you what do you wish you knew today going into this that could have saved you time or heartbreak or anything like that.
1: Sure. I'm not sure that we could have saved any time doing it the way we did it. We did it really kind of, you know, us on hands-on, you know, uh, small construction firm, uh, that sort of stuff. But I would suggest to people nowadays, if you do have the money and you can hire you know, maybe a Kafka or, or someone with a lot more experience that can really expedite the process. We definitely could have been open six months. Yeah. I mean, that also
0: comes with deep pockets, you know, it does. maybe when you open the second restaurant (laughs) and put some money away, you can do that. Uh, but there's also a lot of benefits to doing it the way that you did it, which is just bootstrapping, uh, staying as possible. What are the benefits? How, how did that start? I wouldn't
1: change it at all. I mean, literally, literally my blood is, you know, in this place, you know, we've Cut my forehead open. We cut my face open. You know, doing, I almost doing, doing. cut my forehead open walking down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's low ceilings for sure downstairs. In the basement. Um, yeah. yeah, when you put your hands on it, and, and, and you're a mom and pop shop. You know, my people love the the banquet that we have here, and it's all old corks from different restaurants. So, Neptune Oyster Toro, uh, Cireso, Le Zygmunt, blah blah blah. We saved all these corks over the years. And then eventually one day we decided, oh, we can make a great back wall banquette out of this. And my wife spent, you know, hours and hours in here putting each one in hand, you know, one hand at a time. It was a great idea until you started doing it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but people love it. You know, it's little things like that. You know, if you have a design to come in, there's, oh, I just going to put this over here, this banquette, and it's all good. There's no there's no love in that. So having your hands on it is so important. Even if you do use a CAFCO or something like, you know, someone on those lines, you, you need to be involved. You need to have your hands. You need to have your touches. People notice that sort of thing. It makes the story better. You it know. You
0: get to tell a story behind everything that went into this place. Correct. When people ask about it, you don't just say, oh, like, yeah, that cost $20,000 for us to do. Like, no, like, here's how we did it. And we saved all these things. And that resonates. That sticks with people. Totally. The storyline, the brand, it really just really
1: imprints on people. Mm -hmm. There was a bad era there, I think, in Boston where the same designer, and I won't say his name, but he was designing everyone's restaurants. So it was like, you went in and you're like, oh, yeah. So and so did this. So and so did that. You could just tell it was all cookie cutter. There yeah. was no love. There was no like no personality. Mm-hmm. And you needed that. We had personality from our contractor, from our friends, from our wives, from the architect. You know, a lot of people were like, "Hey, how about this? How about that?" And if you look at Bruce, look, you see it. We got those big ass speakers behind the bar. John just brought those in one day, and I had put it on its side because I was I couldn't lift it up by myself. And we step back and we're like, that's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. you know, so it just stayed like it that. There's a lot of charm there. Yeah. Um, so what were some of the roadblocks that you hit? Some some of the things that you can kind of give us a heads up about? That. City stuff is tough. Anyone who's, who's involved in the restaurants in, in Massachusetts, I will tell you, you know, it's getting better, but 1010 Mass Ave is a, is a real unique uh, space for people doing restaurants. Um, we had some great experiences. We had some tough experiences. When you don't know what you're doing and you go to a place and you're looking, you know, for help basically and they say hey this is wrong and push it back at you it's like well i know it's fucking wrong because i don't know what i'm doing you know but if someone could help you know i really hope that Boston is moving towards that way of instead of saying hey this is wrong go fix it saying hey this isn't right let me show you exactly what you need to do and then go do it and then come back to me so who would that person be maybe you <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what i'm hoping other other
0: business owners right Correct. and we need to get to that point where it's not about us versus you but us you know, 100%. we like when we and you look at it and I've seen it time and time again because I've had the luxury of being able to drive into these cities and to be a part of these communities of restaurant tours and talking to people. And there's a pattern. You see that the, the restaurants that are at the top of the game in every city all know each other and they're a support group. They're all helping each other out. They're sharing mm-hmm. knowledge. They're sharing resources. They're sharing everything. Mm-hmm. And they don't look at their neighbors as com- competitors They look at them as colleagues. And exactly. when you have that mentality, like Danny Meyer says, we're bring it back to Danny Meyer a lot. All ships rise with the tide, right? Right. Uh, and and we need to go back to, to looking at it that way. Um and when we do, when we share like we we can The independent restaurant owner, when we help each other out, will have a better chance of competing against the big corporations of the world that are going to seemingly take over if we do something about all these things that we just can't compete with, like regulations and minimum wage, like stuff that the little guys can't deal with. Like, we need to work
1: with each other. We need to share knowledge. You're 100% right. It's the word of mouth. We do do absolutely no advertising, no PR, no anything like that. But it's – you know. At least 10 times in a week, someone comes in and says, oh, I was just down at row 34 and so-and-so sent me over here. Or we were over at Neptune Oyster and they mentioned you guys, you know, to come by, have a glass of wine or a beer or something. It's all about, you know, banding together and helping each other out. You look at the seaport and, you know, look how screwed up that is. You know, that is, that's not Boston. Yeah. That's not a place, you know… You, you can basically stop at row 34 and then skip that whole other section of, you know, places that have heart. It's yeah. just, it's terrible. What happened.
0: So I'm loving this conversation. You've been providing so much value, but I really want to dive more into um, some of the key things uh, to help you get to where you are today from the day that you opened the doors here. Like some of the evolutionary things, some of the the, the things that you
1: learned along the way, being here in these four walls at Brewers fork um, staff, staff, Number one, you know, listening to your staff. If you're an owner and and you kind of, you know, have written everything down and you're just going to follow step one to step 10, you, you're going to screw it up. What do you mean by listening to your staff? Give me an example. Staff are, they're your life. They touch every table. Bartenders touch every guest. You know, I can stand back and kind of watch and, and kind of. Okay, we need to touch this, we need to do that, blah, blah, blah. But the staff's going to let me know, table thirties, it's their birthday. You know, table table 52, uh, just move to the neighborhood. You know, if you're if you're an owner and your staff tells you that and you don't walk by that table and introduce yourself, you're not going to make it. You know, not in a neighborhood like Charleston. The regulars are everything. You need to have the lifeblood with the regulars. So uh, for us, right away in the beginning, we told every single staff member, you need to have your own regulars. Yes, Carrie's going to have people that come to see her. Yes, John's going to have people that come to see her. But you guys need to make regulars, let the rest of the staff know who they are. So when that person comes back next week and you say, hey, Bob, hey, Jane, great to see you guys. There's something different in that vibe when you go to a restaurant versus when you just go and a hostess says "Too, great to sit you down. You eat food might be great. Wine might be great. But then you leave. That didn't impact you. That didn't that you didn't have an experience. You just ate food. So how do we get to the point where our staff members
0: are developing their own regulars? Is there framework around that? Is there? strategy around that? Is there anything that you guys have created to to be able to communicate who's who?
1: What does that look like? Or is it ju- just there? It's knowledge and freedom. You know, you give your staff the knowledge that so they feel confident. They understand and they take a piece of Brewer's Fork. The idea is to have them make their guests feel like they also are a piece of Brewer's Fork. We want every guest to feel like Brewer's Fork is part of their their house, their their living room. When people do that, they treat things differently. You know, you go to the table and maybe X, Y, Z is taking a couple minutes longer. They're not going to look at you and be like, hey, where the fuck's my food? They're going to say, oh, no worries. It's all good. Nice yeah. to see you, Sarah. How you doing? Sarah has a quick 10, 30 second conversation, whatever. And then off they go. <laughs> um, the ability to allow your staff as well to take care of their guests. You know, our, our boy Danny Myers, another thing he says, you know, he's never gonna get <laughs> yeah. mad at a staff member for making a guest happy, mm-hmm. you know, sending out a little moose to a table because it's great to see them again because it's their birthday, because for whatever reason. Like,
0: what did that moose cost the restaurant? Like $10, maybe
1: $20? I don't know. I it don't, doesn't maybe cost it's really that much, moose. but it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, you know, but sending out a little moose to a table comes back a thousand times.
0: Exactly. When they come back five times after that and they spend X amount of money with you, it paid for itself 10 times over. hundred uh, percent. And you said, for, I think it was freedom and knowledge or knowledge and freedom were the things that you give your staff that you empower your staff with to be able to operate. Like you're saying, what does that look like? That the process of giving them the knowledge, how, how do you
1: make sure they get the knowledge? What, what's that process look like? So two separate things here. In the beginning, we had a lot of training. Obviously, because we got delayed and, uh, you know, we sat down, we did a lot of beer training, a lot of wine training. We did a lot of service training because our service, you know, as I mentioned before, it's the knowledge, it's the key, but it's your personality using our guidelines, right? So this is our restaurant. We developed it. We want you to be able to use your personality via, you know, things that we've learned over the years that we think work really well. We want you to implement our ideas onto the table. So the training was a, was a lot in the beginning as far as that goes. As we have it now, we do as Wine trainings every month, which is great because that, you know, list changes a lot and the staff loves it. A lot of our staff, um, you know, has a great beer knowledge because we are a quote-unquote craft beer bar. So they come with that. Now a lot of them are so geeked out on wine. It's amazing. They show up with different books all the time. Like that's all they want to talk about is wine, wine, wine. Um, which is great. The other part, which is huge for us is, um, you know, I think we, I don't know what our exact front of the house numbers off top of my head, but we still have eight folks from day one and we're coming up on year four. So, you know, people that understand the restaurant world know that, you know, how many total folks do you have all together? I think we have 46 total front of those back of the house. And I want to say we're somewhere in the low twenties for front of the house for total, um, for servers and bartenders. And that's, I mean, to maintain people for four years—that's amazing.
0: Especially in God today's job. market, it's ridiculous. It is, yeah. So you're empowering them by p- providing the framework. You're you're creating the the, the training uh, tools, resources at their disposal. You're, you're putting them through training. I'm assuming when they get hired, yep. um, and then the, the that's the knowledge part, but how do you give, how do you equip your people with freedom? Is it just the culture of stating like you're free to do, to make decisions? Is that like, how do you make that clear? How do you, in,
1: how do you weave that into your culture? That sense of freedom? Mm-hmm. You, you let them grow into it. So new hires are going to see some of our long timers that have been here four years and they'll notice, you know, Hey, they go to the table. They send out a moose in the beginning. They'll ask, Hey, I've got so-and-so here. Can I send out a little moose to them? After they're comfortable and they see how we do things, they don't ask anymore. They don't need to ask. It's in the computer. You're ringing in. Every once in a while, you know, John might say on the line, hey, who's that? Just so in case it's someone we know. Or Carrie and I floating around, and might say, oh, I know it's in a to 32. Do we need to stop by the table to say hi? Um, but it, it's something that they learn very quickly by watching us here. Um, usually every night, most every night, Carrie and I are, are on the floor. So the staff sees how, how we are, how we interact, and then they kind of learn from that. So –
0: you said the technology, are you leveraging technology to track this data to empower your people?
1: We are not. Okay. Yeah. We actually go the, the, the old school route. Um, I know, you know, we use toast and there's a lot of different ways that you can go and have, you know, a whole, a whole list of this is so-and-so and and this is what they like to eat. And I get that. And it works very well for a lot of restaurants, but we started in the beginning and still to this day maintain kind of the mom and pop style. Yeah. So there's, you know, nothing makes me happier than when people come in and, You know, one of my servers walks over and has a a two minute conversation and comes over and I say, who are those people? And they say, you don't know them. They're here twice a week. It's so and so blah, 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 (laughs) blah. I love that. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: So we're over an hour of recording time. I've loved this conversation. I don't want to cut you short, though. Is there anything that we have not discussed up to this point? Anything that's kind of rearing at you
1: that you want to get out and leave it on the table before going to the speed round? Um, just touching back on the young—I know a lot of young entrepreneurs and, and young restaurant people uh, listen to your show. Um, just you know, sticking with it, staying strong, and don't be shy about asking questions. You know, if you if you know, maybe you know five GMs, you don't know any restaurant owners. You know, just talking to those people and saying, "Hey, I've got a bunch of questions," and writing everything down and writing your answers down. And eventually, for some reason, one way or another, you'll start to meet owners. You'll start to meet. Ad, um, advisors or people that invest in restaurants, and just continually asking the questions because you don't know what you don't you, know what might change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you just need to keep writing, keep talking, keep at it. Don't let it sit in your head and think to yourself, "Oh, one day I want to do something." Yeah, you got to keep going. So, one last question that just popped into my head, and I want to start being better about
0: asking this question to all my guests. Since you've opened your doors uh, three years ago. With all the experience you have, and since opening your doors three years ago, three years ago to this day, how have you transformed? Who, who are you today versus who you
1: were when you first opened your doors? Hmm, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think business wise, I've definitely uh, learned to trust a lot more. Uh, in the beginning, when it's you know all the pressure's on and you just borrowed all this money, um, you want your finger on everything. And, and as time has gone on, I've I really have uh learned to trust my coworkers here the staff and allowing them to you know give me advice on how we should do things and that is 100 uh helped me be able to see the bigger picture um, and look towards a long-term you know a 10 15 20 year hopeful run excuse me with brewer's fork versus thinking of it you know on a week-to-week basis Beautiful.
0: Awesome. Great, great stuff. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two Things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with CashflowTool.com, the ultimate cloud based solution for your business. CashflowTool.com is simple. Powerful and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com/unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and Web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to EthicsSweets.com slash restaurants unstoppable, and you will get three additional months. So for the cost of 12 months, you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there. We're back. <laughs> and the first question <laughs> I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success?
1: Hard work. I know it's a silly short answer, but hard work. It's legit. Uh, What is your biggest weakness? Um, Patience.
0: I hear that. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process?
1: Hmm. Interesting. We don't bother with resumes or anything. That it's mostly, I would say, looking people eye to eye, checking their eye contact. You can tell a lot just by staring someone right in the eye. I dig it. Uh, What is your biggest challenge today? Staffing. How are you overcoming that challenge? Doing our best to maintain our current staff. How are you doing that? Providing a safe, happy workplace where they can make some good money. Awesome. Share one
0: code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act.
1: Uh, It goes back to that, would you serve that to your mother? I love it. What
0: is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is something that's standard within your four walls, but not standard within the industry. Have fun with your table. Don't be shy about joking. I love it. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? You cannot say Danny Meyer saying the table. <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> um, that's not that you can't or shouldn't read that book. It's awesome, but we need some other resources. Everyone throws
1: it out there. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People's biggest book. lesson from that book. Uh, oof! Biggest lesson. Which, which
0: is your favorite habit?
1: Ah, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think
0: my favorite. I'll go first, and then maybe it will spark something in you. Start with the end in mind. The end in mind? Starting with the end in mind is my favorite habit. Whenever you think about what you want or where you're trying to go, especially in the restaurant industry, Hmm. think forward and work your way back. Interesting. Uh, I like that.
1: Did anything come to your mind? No. And All it's right. funny because now you got me in the spot. i read the book like 20 <laughs> times. I can't think of anything.
0: If you think of anything before we uh, hit the end button on the recording, right. uh, you can drop it on us. <laughs> uh, if there was one tool or re- resource you wish you had now or wish you had when you're getting started, what would it be?
1: Uh, that's a good question. When I started, there was no... Um, kind of toast the system that we use now, the POS system. And that's been very, very helpful. What is it about toast that has been most helpful? Uh, it's very organized on the backside, you know, for a manager and owner. When I first started out, obviously as a server bartender that it wasn't as much of an issue, but um, yeah, it's, it's very, very organized on the backside. So, you know, as an owner, you can check everything on your phone. You can be, you can be away. Um, you can really be organized in many facets without having to be at the desk in the office. Um I would say when I first started out 20 years ago give or take um the music always sucked. So being able to use, you know, Pandora things like that nowadays and really create that vibe for the bar or the restaurant is very very helpful. How does that work with Pandora? Is there a special business uh... Yeah, you got to use Pandora business. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And how do you have you like that? Uh it's fine. You know, like anything you you hear the same songs over and over and you get kind of you know, you got to really switch it up a bunch, but, uh, it works well for us. We kind of have different energies that we like to go with, you know, a Tuesday night at seven is different from a Friday night at nine sort of thing. Um, but we all grew up, you know, in the eighties. So we like eighties new wave. We like nineties hip hop. Yeah. Um, you know, our families our, our mom and dads and the kids here always say, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, a little Billy's running around making noise or whatever. And I always say the same thing. If you don't mind Biggie's, sp- you know, in the background, super loud, <laughs> I don't <laughs> mind the kids screaming.
0: Awesome. Uh, what is one thing you think restaurants don't do well enough or often
1: enough? tours don't do it well enough or often enough. Share knowledge. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean, even down as low as the staff, as we mentioned earlier, you know, it's, when someone works for us at Brewer's Fork, it's great. You know, we have people, like I said, who've been here four years, but they come to work and they work with us. So they see my philosophy and my opinion on how to do things. It'd be great to be, let them have a month or two wherever, you know, try something new, learn some new stuff and, and still be able to make money. Awesome. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? I guess, yeah. (laughs) If you got
0: the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? The three things you know to be true. For all of humanity. Or just for the restaurant industry, but yeah, for humanity too. Why not? Business is business. (laughs) Um,
1: All right. Um, When given the option, drink the better beer or wine. Okay. Uh, Always take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, What's number three? Always hug your mother.
0: I love it, man. This has been a blast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to Thank share your you. story, your knowledge, your mentorship. I really found a lot of value from this conversation. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one or maybe a partnership of restaurateurs, somebody you admire in this industry and you believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? A um, couple folks, if, you're, if you want to hear a few. I'm, I'm open. Um, the more leads, the better. Am there you I? go.
1: Um, Haley who runs Haley Henry and Natalie, her and her partner, Christy Weiss. They're uh, both hilarious and uh, we love them. We love what they're doing. They're super hardworking. Michael Serpa, I'm sure you heard of. He owns Select Oyster. He's another uh, mom and pop shop working his ass off. And then um, a non-restaurant company, which might be a great person for you to talk to because it affects many, many people in the industry, is uh, Maddie Bailey from Modern Draft. Um, They do all the draft systems. You know, of. Trillium, Jack's Abbey, and you know, all these yes. other brewers that build all those systems and all the cleaning, Night Shift, who you know. I love um, it. Beautiful. Maybe they can sponsor the show. There you go. Right, not a bad idea. <laughs> Haley
0: and Michael and Maddie in Modern Draft. Look out. I'm coming after you. <laughs> uh, Maddie was the Modern Draft, right?
1: He is. Yeah. 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 Maddie Look, and Chris. Chris is by me.
0: Look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know, uh, how can we follow you? Uh, maybe on social media or if we want to connect with you or maybe come join your team, what's the best way to connect?
1: Yeah, um, we do a lot of activity on Instagram, which is the Brewers and then underscore fork. Um, Twitter is at Brewers Fork and then Brewers Fork at Gmail. Um, you know, especially if it's industry folks, say hello when you come in. We love our industry in here. We always take care of them. Um, you know, that's the lifeblood of, of what we do. Um, but yeah, come by, say hi, I'm usually here beautiful this is episode 400 and sorry i always say
0: 400 i forget uh. that i've cleared the 500 mark. It's 548 i believe wow. i'll correct that in the closing thoughts if i'm wrong but uh, if you want a summary of today's discussion plus a link back to the tools and resources mentioned in today's show head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash for jesus i did it again 548 michael cooney again thank you so much there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you cheers there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable michael cooney awesome stuff out of you today and it was actually episode 549 i said 548 uh when I was wrapping up the interview. But if you want to, check out a summary of today's discussion, links to all the tools, services, books that are recommended, uh, as well as how to connect with Michael Cooney if you're interested in learning more about the things we discussed today. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 4 nine and some great stuff in today's conversation i think the big takeaway for me uh is this idea of living intentionally taking jobs intentionally to learn from the best uh while he was at ceriso he went to the public house uh, specifically to learn more about beer that was the, the the bar in town that was doing craft beer the best at the time and he went to go learn from the best uh Awesome stuff there. I think the other big takeaway from today's conversation is this idea of giving your people freedom. Uh, Freedom to explore. Freedom to uh, be themselves within your four walls. And when you do that, uh, they are able to connect better with your guests. And they, like he says, create their own regulars. Uh, Awesome stuff there as well. And man, just nuggets left and right. Also, you can't overlook the great advice on things to consider when finding a business partner and going to investors and keeping in mind that everyone that you ever come across could be a potential investor. So treat each person you encounter in this industry like your future investor. All right, guys, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurant Instagram and Twitter, Eric CatchTory, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. Uh, I'm also on Spotify now and Google Play, so if those are your jams, go check me out over there. Uh, the best way to support this podcast, though, is simply by sharing it. If you know of anybody who's aspiring to be great in this restaurant industry. Put this podcast on their radar. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So hang out with us three days a week and surround yourself with the best. All right, guys, that's all for now. Thanks for hanging out this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.